0: Hey, my friends, I want to let you all know that my very first book, The Path of an Eagle, How to Overcome and Lead, after being knocked down, is now available for pre-order. I'll make sure the link is available in the show notes below. All right, my friends, let's do the show. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome, everyone, to the Storybox. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly, my name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now, let's journey into the story box together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Did you know that almost one in five people, that is 47.1 million in the US alone have been diagnosed with a mental health condition? That number is a lot higher in other countries, if we're including Australia, and that number is on the rise. That number has increased by about 1.5 million from just last year alone, if we're talking about... 2021, And if you are someone that was here in Sydney, Australia, during 2021, we had the second wave, the second pandemic, and they locked us down for almost four months, four months of just extreme measures, which would have no doubt contributed to a lot of people's mental health. Because as human beings, we were created to connect with one another on a more personal level. Level It's all well and good to have social media as part of it, but we need that human interaction and we weren't allowed to get much of that. Many of us were not allowed to see our families. So you would almost actually think straight away that mental health would increase as a result. People that had never had mental health conditions before are now calling up uh, hotlines and, and call centers that help people through mental health. They're complaining about depression, anxiety, you name it, whatever it is. So what do we do with that? With the mounting sense of isola- isolation and our fragmented country, that is in the US and Australia or lower countries, I should say, more, that number is set to rise. But what can we do about it, honestly? Over the past 30 years, doctors diagnosed my guest today, Sarah Fay, with six different mental illnesses, anorexia, major depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and bipolar disorder. Her new book, Pathological, is the gripping story of what it is like to live with these diagnoses and the crippling impact each had on her life. It is also a rigorous investigation into the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental health disorders, Psychiatrist Bible, the manual from which all mental health or mental illness diagnoses come from. Yet, as Sarah found out, some of the most prominent psychiatrists have been trying to warn us that the DSM is fiction sold to the public as fact. My guest today. Sarah Fay is an award-winning author and mental health advocate working to improve how we think and talk about our mental health by moving the conversation away from simplistic diagnoses and towards a deeper understanding of our mental health and emotional lives. She writes for many publications including the New York Times, the Atlantic Time and the Paris Review. She She is a recipient of the Hopwood Award for Literature and Grants and Fellowship from Yaddo. Uh, the Mellon Foundation, and the McDowell Colony, among many, many others. She's also the faculty of Northwestern University, where she teaches. She's also the founder of Pathological, the movement, and she's the author of the book by the same name, Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses, which you can go and get a copy of right now if you want to get a copy of it and help support Sarah. Uh, And it's really something that we should all be thinking about in today's society, right? Mental health is on the rise. What can we do about it? How can we help? And as psychologists, as psychiatrists, therapists, if you are listening to this, what are some of the things that we can do better in order to help those people that are struggling, spreading messages around and and uh, hopefully that can be heard by a lot of people to know that they're not alone in this and that they can get help and they should get help. So my friends, I believe this is a powerful one and I hope that you guys get something from it. I am someone that is a big advocate for mental health as I've been through quite a bit of it in my life and it is a struggle. But I know that there is a lot of hope and a lot of uh, strategies out there to help those that are struggling with it. So if you do get something from this, please share it around to all your friends and your family. I'll let everyone know about this one. Also, don't forget before you leave to leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts it just goes a long way in, in helping support the show and getting the show seen so more people can listen to episodes like this one. All right, my friends. You know what time it is. It is time to learn more about misdiagnosis of mental health conditions, what we can do about it, how we can help people with mental health right now as we journey into the story box and listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice and the stories of none other than Sarah Fay.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for making the time to be here. You also, you have a PhD and may I ask what's that PhD in? Is it English literature? English literature.
1: Yeah. People ask me if they can use the PhD if they want, or if I want to be called doctor. And I'm like, no, I, I, the most I can do is help someone read a book. You know <laughs> I mean? I'm, I'm not a helpful doctor. I'm just, you know, I'm not the person on the plane who can answer to, is there a doctor on the flight?
0: <laughs> so, that, is, that is interesting. I haven't had many people that have a PhD in literature. That is, that is so cool. How long did it yeah. take you to get that, that PhD? Six years. Six years of long study. So a lot of books, is that correct? A lot lot of of
1: books and a lot of time spent in what we call the stacks. So meaning the library, we call it the stacks. And so this was back when you actually were dealing with real books and not on the internet. But I joke that I missed the entire Obama presidency because (laughs) I was completely absorbed. (laughs) I was just in a tunnel of PhD.
0: The Eight years of just studying in the library. (laughs) (laughs) Because he did much exams, I believe. Uh, How do I know that? Uh, Anyway, um, but it's so good to have you here. I I mean, my understanding of the English language is very limited. So I kind of feel like I'm below my britches right now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. But um, my very first question for you, and once again, you've already, you've listened to my show. So you kind of know the very first question that is coming. So you've kind of had time to prepare for this, I believe. But what does success look like for you?
1: Right now, and I'm actually writing the sequel to Pathological uh, at the moment, so I'll have the second book coming very soon. But for me, success is that I've healed from a mental illness. I know we're told that you can't, but there is no scientific data that says that we can't fully heal meaning completely recovered meaning i no longer have a mental illness um and and that's really the greatest success of my life because i wouldn't be i wouldn't be alive today um you know so you know long enough ago but i was in crisis and suicidal and and unable to live independently for five years i lived with my mother this was in my 40s so i know what severe You know, serious mental illnesses and not having that anymore is I can't even explain it. It's an incredible experience.
0: Mm. How did you end up with that mental health condition?
1: So I was diagnosed with my first, I received my first mental health diagnosis when I was 13. I was in eighth grade and I was, my parents were divorcing. I was going to a new high school. I was extremely sad and I was terrified and I had a terrible stomach ache and I didn't want to eat. I couldn't eat. I mean, it wasn't even a choice. And I ended up going on an eighth grade class trip and I didn't eat for four days and then couldn't hold down food or water. And my parents rightly took me to the emergency room and we ended up seeing my uh, pediatrician and he put me on the scale and he said, you have anorexia. Wow. And at that moment, there was so much going on in my life. I did not have the three classic signs of anorexia. I was not counting calories. I was not obsessively weighing myself. And I didn't think I was fat. I didn't have body dysmorphia at that time. So it really was a doctor, especially a pediatrician, which really, you know, pediatricians in in the US, they aren't trained the way that a psychiatrist is and certainly a child psychiatrist. But for him to look at me and say anorexia, What it did to my child mind, because I wasn't mature enough to handle a diagnosis really, I thought, okay, emotions, thoughts, behaviors, diagnosis distressing, uncomfortable, you know, anything you don't like, it was because I have a disorder. And then when I was in my twenties, I was told that I had a generalized anxiety disorder, then major depressive disorder. In my thirties, I was told I had attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD, then obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. Then I was told I had OCD with OCD and ADHD, with obsess- with anxious and depressive elements, like a whole mix there. <laughs> wow. And then I was told in my forties that I had bipolar disorder. So those were the six that I, I went through. And you you asked why, why I received those diagnoses. I mean, one thing I want to be clear about is mental illness is very, very real. And I had one for 25 years and it was such a struggle and it's, it's so clear that I once had a mental illness because I no longer do. My brain is completely different. Um, and I'm trying to explain it in the new book. So I'll hopefully have more when that comes out. But, but the diagnoses that I received never quite captured my pain. No. And they didn't hold the answers to my pain. So I would get a diagnosis and I would think, yes, this is it. This is the answer. If I just learn everything about ADHD, it's all going to be better. And I'm not going to be in this pain. If I just learn everything about major depressive disorder. And I mean, everything like how to treat it. But what I didn't know was where our mental health diagnoses come from. I knew Mm -hmm. nothing about their history. What makes someone get a diagnosis of major depressive disorder? Those things I didn't know yet. Um, So what caused me to get the diagnoses was seeing... Usually, my GP. So, in the US, that's like your primary care physician, general doctor, the person you see on an annual visit. So, my book is not at all anti psychiatry because most of my diagnoses came from an annual visit to my doctor after 15 minutes. He would say, You have ADHD. And then another said, No, you know, uh, generalized anxiety disorder. So, these diagnoses were being given very freely and not by the experts.
0: When we say, okay, so you're diagnosed with a mental health condition, did you find that the diagnosis actually helped you work on the path towards recovery or did you think it made it worse?
1: I think it, well, I know that it made me worse and again, I didn't want to say because I think everyone has a different experience of this, but it made me worse because I over identified with the diagnosis. Yep. I saw myself as the diagnosis. Well, even it comes going to back identity, to doesn't it? it? Absolutely. And that's the danger. Now, some people find great relief in their diagnoses, and I think they see them in a more positive light than I did. And then there's one example of autism. Where mm-hmm. that community, I mean, they just rally around their diagnosis. They are empowered by their diagnosis. They get funding. They get resources. That's a very positive, and again, I'm generalizing, but positive diagnosis. I took on all the negatives, and so I didn't get well. And then part of it was that it. I was told that I would have them for the rest of my life and that I would never heal. So, like, where does that leave you exactly? <laughs>
0: Yeah. It doesn't leave you with many options, does it? Like you you can continue going back to the doctor and just like, like, what's the point? If you're not going to heal ever, then what's the point of going to the doctor? Honestly, it doesn't make any sense to me, to be honest.
1: And that's just bringing on so much despair. I mean, we we think about, when I think about my experience with suicidality, it was so much of it had to do with the fact that I thought I'm always gonna be this way. I'm always gonna be in this pain. And and I one reason why I wrote Pathological and why I'm writing the new book is to try to save people from feeling that way. Yeah. You know, there is hope and there is a chance and I've experienced it. And it's, it's absolutely worth it
0: hanging on. When you are in that stage of depression, of anxiety, of uh, suicide, suicidal ideation, you don't feel like there is any hope. You don't feel like there is a way out at all because you're you're so focused in that negative state, if I can use the word negative, that everything else is meaningless. And I know I've, I've been there like when I was growing up, like I would be in and out of hospital with Stomach problems, doctors had no idea what was going on with me. And I, I equate most of that to, because unexplained illness, I, I equate most of that to trauma. And back then we had no idea, especially my parents, they had no idea about traumas, about how that affects the body, about how that affects the mental health. And as a result, like neither did the doctors, like they didn't say, hey, we're going to diagnose you with a traumatic illness. Uh, problem here. Like let's work on some strategies and how to heal that. I'm only learning that now at the age of 25, 20, almost 26, which is fascinating. And and like backtracking to my younger self, I'm like, that makes a lot of sense. Like, cause there's a lot of un, unexplained illnesses that go on and they slip through the radar, slip through the cracks, they get misdiagnosed or they don't even get diagnosed. And as a result, it's like you, you left questioning what's going on but there's overwhelming evidence now to to suggest that okay what happened with me in and out of hospital with stomach problems and and all that sort of stuff was linked to sexual abuse as a six-year-old kid and Mm -hmm. that just um it 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 interests me but then also later on in my life dealing with depression it's like you have this this cloud over his brain fog that goes on You don't really, you can't really explain it until it's made clear to you. And that was only made clear to me in in 20, it was 2020 when we finally found out there was sexual abuse. So there's that. And then also dealing with severe panic attacks, anxiety for most of my life, which came as a result, I believe, like you were talking about things going on in the family, a lot of pressure. Uh, then depression, and then I also dealt with anorexia, bulimia, and wow. addictions. So I, I completely resonate and I understand what it's like. And I'm, I went through all that like in my, my teens and, and my early 20s. And I wish I had a book like yours and to, to just tell me like this, this is what's going on and here's how to help. Like he's had to heal completely. It's possible.
1: Yeah, and and you know, with pathological, the the first step for me because I over identified, and this isn't everyone's experience. So pathological is the first step of this, which was I had to find out that the labels were given. Although I don't love that term because it's somewhat dismissive, and I yeah. I think you know psychiatric diagnosis we mean well when we use them. They're tr- we're trying to categorize. We're trying to treat. Um, you know, again, it, it's meant well, but when we were given a label, those labels are really flimsy. They're not based in science and they don't have the research to back them up. So if you're using the diagnosis for yourself to help yourself, absolutely go, go for it. Like, that's great. But if you are like I did, if you're using it against yourself, they aren't strong enough. They aren't valid enough to do that. They do, they do not mean that there is something wrong with you or there is something biologically broken in you none of those diagnoses do
0: so what if someone is misdiagnosed how do we help them
1: what's interesting the reason why i chose the word misdiagnosis is because you know i'm a english professor <laughs> i get i geek <laughs> out on definitions actually a review it was a negative review of my book i got lots of nice reviews and the new york times was very nice and very you know hailed it as a fiery manifesto of a memoir but i did get a bad review and she said she defines everything <laughs> and i was like yeah i do 100 what's wrong with that <laughs> <laughs> but anyway so misdiagnosis i think of it as being incorrect but it's actually incorrect or inadequate. Yeah. And so there's a, there's a part of that that I felt like was kind of empowering, which is that we get a mental health diagnosis. We think they, well, I thought they were scientifically proven, totally valid. If someone says you have major depressive disorder, you have major depressive disorder and there's no conversation to be had about it. And what I learned in my research is that that's not the case. We need to um, have that conversation with our mental health care provider, um, whoever is do or clinician, whoever's doing the diagnosing and talk about, is this an accurate, adequate, correct diagnosis, right? Does it fit all these kind of tick all these boxes in a way? Because really what I found is that mental health diagnoses come from a book, It's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. If your eyes just glazed over, don't worry. (laughs) Mine did too every time I heard that title for some reason. But it's known as the DSM. We use it in the United States, but it has a huge influence globally. So even though I think Australia uses the ICD, which is the World Health Organization's kind of version. It's not their version, but it's their companion to the DSM. The DSM, all the diagnoses that we have in there... Are very much a part of popular culture. I mean, they're just very much they're everywhere, right? Major depressive disorder, ADHD, OCD. They're in our conversations, they're in our minds. We self-diagnose, they're TikTok therapists, diagnoses <laughs> are memes, you know. I mean, they're just everywhere. And so I I pictured you know, a research lab with people in lab coats, microscopes, <laughs> petri dishes, you know, that that's where those diagnoses came from. And it turns out they actually are just theories in a book. And in 1952, uh, members of the American Psychiatric Association sat down around a table and determined these are 128 thoughts, behaviors, or emotions that we're going to call pathological, meaning not normal, and that there's something wrong with them if you experience them in this way. And that's it, that's as far as it goes. So there is research about the diagnoses, but the diagnoses don't come from research, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I had no idea. And then there's the reliability factor, which is that if you see two clinicians at the same time and you, I tell my story of not eating, of my parents divorcing, et cetera, they likely will not agree on the diagnosis using the criteria from the DSM. So all of that was incredibly disturbing to me, especially because I had over-identified so much and really made my, I centered my life around my diagnosis. I made it my identity. I didn't have bipolar disorder. I was bipolar. It was me. And that was really, really dangerous. So a misdiagnosis in that way, you say, what can someone do? I actually started a movement, a public awareness campaign for this reason. My book tells my story, and then it also, pathological, this book, uh, it tells my story, but it also gives people all the information I wish I'd known about mental health diagnoses. So that's kind of where to start if you really want to help yourself or help your child to know what you're dealing with when you walk into a clinician's office and they say to you, you have bipolar disorder, you have anxiety disorder. Um, But then I also once since the book came out, I wanted to give people action steps. And so I founded uh, Pathological the Movement, which is a public awareness campaign to empower people to make more informed decisions about their mental health. And I have an amazing advisory board. I'm not a mental health professional of mental health professionals who kind of have checked everything that I I say. Um, I'm very confident in my research abilities and my writing abilities, but they know best. Um, But the pathological, the movement wants to give people four facts. And this is, again, to empower you in making mental health decisions the first fact is that a mental health diagnosis is just a designation that a clinician uses to get you the right treatment it's not an identity it's not you it's just a designation and what's fascinating is in my research between the 19th century and most of the way through the 20th century patients didn't know their diagnoses They had no idea. They were just for doctors to communicate with each other, not for doctors to communicate with patients and certainly not for patients to think about themselves. The second fact we give people is that it's best always with a psychiatric diagnosis to get a second opinion. And I know that's a luxury. I've been without healthcare. I don't know if it is in Australia because you're all more evolved than we are. <laughs> um, but, you know, not having healthcare, I know that finding, you know, getting a second opinion can be a luxury, but it's really important to check a diagnosis because they are invalid. We we do not have a biological marker, an objective measure like an x-ray or a scan or some sort of blood test to prove it. So getting a, um, a second opinion. The third fact is that the chemical imbalance theory, which is now called the chemical imbalance myth, is just that it's scientifically meaningless. You do not have a chemical imbalance. That's not to say that The brain isn't involved. It's just that theory that you have levels of serotonin that are too low or dopamine or whatever it might be. That was never came to fruition. That was never valid. And then the fourth fact, which is the most important to me, is that no mental health diagnosis has been proven to be lifelong and we can recover. So those are the four facts. So I would follow those if I received a diagnosis and if I wanted to make sure that I didn't get... One that's incorrect, inaccurate, or inadequate.
0: Four important points to definitely touch on further. And I know that with the chemical imbalances and that sort of thing, I know what happens when we don't sleep. There is evidence that suggests that our hormones are out of whack and we don't feel the best. Like it does affect our mood, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we are depressed. But if we are long-term... Not sleeping effectively properly, that can throw us completely out of alignment. But as our our good friend Johan Hari says in Lost Connections, you know, that has a major contributing factor to our mental health. Like not having proper connections in our in our lives can contribute to mental health problems like anxiety, like depression, like feeling lonely. And I know that for me, that is definitely the case. Uh, so I mix sleep with connections. Uh, those are two extra ones that I thought I'd, I'd share, uh, in the mix. And hopefully you, you might agree with me on that with, with the research that you have done. And yeah. If you could see
1: me, I'm nodding my head <laughs> majorly. Cause I completely agree. I mean, sleep is, primary there's just no way around that and you know to maintain my health i don't i mean i don't see it that way but the way that i healed was i go to bed at the same time every night and i wake up at the same time every morning like a child (laughs) like a child and that is key and and so but you know and and so absolutely that's true and social connection too I don't know if you have this in Australia, but the other aspect of social connection that I think is important, and it's something I talk about in my book, is also accepting or deciding what kind of social connection is important to you. Because we have this, like, you have to have tons of friends or you have to, and it's too much. I'm a very solitary person. I love solitude. And so what I did when I was healing was I decided, okay, I can only have three areas of focus in my life. That's it. I get to pick three. They can do whatever I want. And I chose writing, teaching, and my family. I'm not a good friend. I will just say it right now. Like, it's just not my area of focus right now. And that might change, but I don't, I want to also accept myself that that's where I'm finding connection and it doesn't have to look like all the websites that tell us you have to have a group of friends and you have to have this and you have to have that and be on Instagram and Facebook and, you know, whatever it might be that, that we also acknowledge what social connection is to us. Yeah. and feel validated like that's enough for
0: me kind of. I'm very much like you. I'm introverted. I much prefer to stay home, read a good book, watch a movie then but I also enjoy those moments of, you know, speaking with a good friend. It doesn't it doesn't mean I have to have like a million and one friends because that would be almost impossible to keep up with everyone every single day and that'd be so tiring. I don't know how Young people do it these days, but I guess they just have that uh, extra amount of energy <laughs> about their day because it, it does feel amazing. And I think that's the kind of connection that we we need to have more of, like proper connection. I think social media and that is a a small part of connection. I think it's more wired than anything else rather than a proper connection. It just enables us to be able to meet someone so we can connect with them properly. Um, But yeah, I I think being able to sit down with someone like face to face and really connect on deeper, more meaningful topics of conversation that helps spark something within us. Like it changes our hormones. I've noticed that you you get a lot more serotonin, you get a lot more happiness drugs (laughs) that are natural in, in your system, which also plays on how we end up sleeping that night. Also exercise is a fantastic element, waking up really really early, getting some sun, those things. So I thought I'd I'd throw those into the mix as well.
1: Absolutely. And I just want to go back a little to the um social connection again because I'm an iconoclast when it comes to this. I'm a real I'm I'm this is where I'm a rebel, but I also I get a lot of satisfaction from online connections i don't know why i teach online actually at the university and and i love it like i feel totally the same online as i do in the classroom and i don't think that's generally how people feel but i think we also kind of condemn online connections as necessarily being bad but i don't know that there's evidence to support that and and people especially with social anxiety and i don't mean a disorder but you know i don't I do get anxious about, you know, I, w- I would be very happy being here with my cat at all times, shooting video of him, <laughs> um, but, you know, and posting it, you know, but, but so when I go out, there's a little bit of a stress element. And so I don't always feel as connected um, as I think other people do when they're face to face. So I just think there's more to open to in the sense of social connection can look a lot of different ways for a lot of different people.
0: Yep. I appreciate you actually saying that because that is very true. Uh, and also like with social media, I think the main point of concern, this is for me at least, that yeah. I've noticed is people not actually responding to you. So you'll send them a message, whereas in actual person, like you can see their emotions. You can see how they're acting, whereas if it's text message and it's kind of like it's a bit different. But I think over Zoom and all that sort of stuff, there is a level of connection there. I definitely agree with that. Because we're doing it right now, yeah. <laughs> so you, can feel it, you can feel it through the Zoom, um, which which is fantastic, and I think we do. Technology has allowed that for us, but the majority of people they don't they don't get that. I think they solely rely on texting as their form of daily connections <laughs> in a yeah. way. So, but yeah. Anyway, that's that's um, that's another topic of conversation. But I wanted to ask you, Sarah, going back to your story a little bit. When was your, your lowest moment? Do you remember?
1: So I was, had been living with my mother for five years. As I mentioned, I was in my forties. Um, I was in crisis and had was suicidal at the time. And I had had a falling out with my psychiatrist. It's in the book. His name is Dr. M he's not evil, but he's the villain. (laughs) And really there was, you know, again, I, I think psychiatry has a very difficult job to do. We go to them with our psychic and emotional pain and say, help me. And meanwhile, they're trying to understand the brain and it's 10 billion neurons or whatever it might be. And then understand the mind. What is the mind? We don't even know. So I think they have a really tall order and There are some bad apples, but my feeling is mental health professionals across the board want to help. That's why they are in the field that they are. And I really admire them and, and respect that. Occasionally you get those that suffer from hubris and really are just so arrogant that they lose sight of the patient. And that's what Dr. M was for me. So I had said I wanted to stop seeing him. And he said, no. And then I said, well, I'm going to, and I was out of medication and he refused to refill them. So I'm out of medication. I'm suicidal. I'm in crisis and I'm, you know, living at my mother's, my sister swept in. Um, My family is definitely the hero of my book. I think families, Uh, especially if they're touched by mental illness, don't get the credit that they deserve. They struggle so much, they have it so hard and they really are the heroes of those stories. But my sister swept in, found me a psychiatrist. I went to see him and we had the 27 minute consultation and I waited at the end for him to say to me to declare either a new diagnosis, a seventh, or to give me, you know, reify, yes, you have bipolar disorder. And instead he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you have. And my whole world changed. I thought no one knows what I have actually. And that was both my lowest point and my turning point because what happened was I left his office. We were talking about Chicago weather, but it was a polar vortex, I mean polar vortex. Like it was so brutally cold. And I left his office, then I was walking down Chicago Avenue, and just the world, Michigan Avenue, just the people, the trees, the cabs, all looked crisper, harsher, but clearer. It was like, oh, I understand now. The answer wasn't in the diagnosis. The answer is somewhere else. It's a combination of treatment and response and helping yourself and getting help. I mean, it's this complex array of things, but that's when I started to Research and when I decided I'm going to learn everything about mental health diagnoses. And that's when I started writing Pathological.
0: Did you find that the medication you were on actually helped you in your mental health condition?
1: (laughs) I had a really different experience with medication than a lot of people do, in that I was diagnosed very young, 13, with anorexia, but they weren't treating anorexics with, or people diagnosed with anorexia, with SSRIs at that time. So I did not get my first psychotropic medication until I was in my 30s. And that's very late, that's, you know, but I was in the system that whole time. So that's very different. Once I was prescribed an SSRI, then, I was in the cycle and I was very quickly, dosages were changed. Meds were changed. I was on and off, off and on lithium and antipsychotics and all, you know, the whole thing. Yes. And, wow. but there's no question that medication has helped me tremendously And I think that there's a lot of pill shaming that goes on. There's this idea that somehow you have to be psychopharmacologically pure, you know, and, and a lot of us are very much helped by our medications. And as long as we don't know very much about mental illness and mental health diagnoses are somewhat insufficient, whatever helps you like more power to you, whether it's meditation or medication when is isn't better or worse? I'm going to get like funding from the pharmaceutical companies for saying this, but, but yeah, you know, I, I just think, yes, in my experience, it was very helpful. The only downside of it was that no one told me that if you stay on them for 12 years, you probably aren't going to be able to go off them. Mm-hmm. And that I would have liked to have known. I'm not sure I would have done anything any differently. I was in incredible pain and I wanted relief and they did bring that, but Now I'm still on them simply because I think my body's dependent on them.
0: Yeah. I know that mental health medication is is a big topic for a lot of people. And while I was never on them, I do know a lot of people that if they weren't on them, they probably wouldn't be alive today. But the problem is subscribing. Usually the first instance for a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists is to prescribe SSRIs and medication to people once they have given them a diagnosis. say, so here you have a mental illness, but there also needs to be other tools. You can't just solely rely on medication to clear your mental illness. I think that these days that is, there's more research doing around other areas that you can use to help, like meditation. And I think all all of them, all things considered, if you can get off medication, that is probably better for your system as a whole because you do end up relying heavily on the medication. It does break the bank half the time. And also like you become addicted to the stuff, which is another entire element altogether, which you can you can go down. And um, I, I think as well, like for psychologists, I know I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, but if someone is struggling with an addiction, it's probably not a good idea as your first instance to prescribe a drug that is addictive in the long term. Like that's just going to make their mental health ten times more worse. It may it may help one area, but what about the other area too? You know what I mean? There's it's, it's yeah. so much to it.
1: <laughs> there is so like we you're talking about too is benzodiazepines, right? Which we yeah. prescribe for anxiety, which are highly addictive. SSRIs aren't, which is why they're not street drugs. They don't really give a high to anybody, but amphetamines used to tri- ADHD medications obviously are, which is why in the United States you need, um, you know, they're, I think they're a class anyway, certain, you know, they're considered a narcotic. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, what's, what's also interesting and why I wanted to tell my story is that I also tried everything before I went on medication. I tried meditation. I mean, I went to plum village with Thich Nhat Hanh. I mean, I was like, I felt my inner body with Eckhart Tolle. I mindfully washed my hands like more than I can say. And I also, I mean, Chinese herbs and yoga, and I always have eaten very healthy. And so I really did try everything. And sometimes, you know, just, they don't work, yeah. and um, you do need a medication or something that can help and stabilize and get you through. And I think if you continue to be on them, that's just a personal decision and a personal choice. But I'd like to see, like, the end goal. I'd like to see the end goal change and the starting point change. And what I mean by that is that what we do is we kind of criticize medications, but the starting point is diagnosis. Yeah. So if we're just readily accepting a diagnosis, of course, we're going to go straight to medication. But if we have a conversation about the diagnosis, then we have to have a conversation about the medication too. Mm-hmm. And so that might, again, empower patients a little bit more. And then I, I don't know that the end goal needs to be on medication, off medication, but I do think we should always be given an exit strategy And what that means is that, yes, I am going to, we don't know, my kind of ideal conversation between a mental health professional and a patient or a clinician is, okay, we don't know very much about mental illness. We do not know very much about mental health diagnoses. The mental health diagnoses we have are incredibly flawed, but these are the ones we use. I think you have x diagnosis, major depressive disorder. We're going to use that just as a label, as a way to get you the treatment you need. The treatment I think you should have is an SSRI based on that. What are your thoughts? Like that's the ideal conversation, which I was, I never had. I was said, I was told you have bipolar disorder. Here's your lithium, (laughs) you know, and then, or whatever medication it would have been. So
0: I've heard some pretty wild stories with people that were on lithium and what that did to their entire system. Like it was it was pretty nasty. I don't know if you've heard any of those in your research. I don't want to. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, trust me, you don't. (laughs) No, (laughs) I don't. I I was pretty crazy.
1: The internet people asked me, what would you have what would you say to your younger self? And it was don't read the internet. (laughs) <laughs> don't read ever unless it's a scientific <laughs> journal don't read it
0: <laughs> that's probably wise advice actually <laughs> but I, I do understand look doctors are humans too at the end of the day and while they're seeing many many patients on any given day they're bound to get some diagnosis wrong and i think they, there's got to be a level of empathy towards that too because you can't get everything right that's impossible. Um, but I think also helping those doctors with strategies around, okay, actually taking the time to listen to this patient properly before actually going in full ball and making a diagnosis that could be wrong. Like that's where it needs to to start as well, as you were saying, which I think is, um, yeah, it's it's needed. And and you were saying to me uh, before we officially began recording that. Australia is really much on the forefront of this, which is fantastic to hear. I didn't know that. (laughs) So I'm like cheering Australia on. Um, But the, the rate of mental health and the increase of it, like, why is that? Why is that happening today, especially what like what's going on with that?
1: Well, there's, you know, I just want to mention, you know, that there are I feel like every time I hear, you know, a brilliant, mental health professional talking about diagnoses and their limitations, they're Australian. So it's, uh, uh, there's just no question, Bruce Cohen and others. Um, but I just want to promote Lucy Fox. I don't know if I'm saying her name right, but her last name is F-O-U-L-K-E-S. And she's British. And she has a book out called Losing Our Minds, it is phenomenal, but I, I say that because you should have her on the show. She's a, really like, I'm it's a phenomenal it book. Um, but one, she's such a wonderful researcher. She's so clear. Um, she has a PhD in psychology, but is an academic psychologist. So she's not a clinician. But what she does in her book is talk about what you just asked, which is, our, is our mental health getting worse or not? how do we look at these studies and what she does so brilliantly and beautifully is she backtracks and she says which we don't talk about who's determining in these surveys how are we determining bad mental poor mental health good mental health. And she talks about how we use interviews, which can be reliable, but also surveys, which are incredibly unreliable and Mm -hmm. often very leading. So have you felt down or depressed in the last two weeks? I will say yes, like to every question, um, just because like, of course I can find a time, you know, or whatever it might be, but she does a really good job of parsing the, you know, the studies that have come out and looking at the effects of the pandemic um, and whether or not our mental health is actually deteriorating globally or in individual countries or not. Yeah. And she just brings it under, uh, you know, sort of scrutiny that we are saying, Oh, our mental health, our mental health, our mental health. And she says, it's not that, it's not that straightforward.
0: Yeah. You know? I think it's a much bigger and wider sort of question to be asked. I think. Because, yeah, I've noticed during the pandemic, especially the numbers have since increased. Like there's been a lot more people calling like the health lines and, and yeah, but yeah, in saying that it's like, how do we help those people? How do we, like, what do we need to do? Is enough being done? Like the, so many of those questions I'm asking as well. Like if you got the increase happening, is the increase of help happening at the same time? Like, how can we coincide with that? So that's the way I think about it, to be honest.
1: Yeah. I mean, and that's certainly not happening in the United States on some level. And I think this also gets into the question of whose mental health has deteriorated because of the pandemic. Yeah. When we just say everyone, well, the Lucy Fox makes a great case and, 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 others have too, that it was people hit hardest by the pandemic. So it was those in low-income areas. It was those from marginalized communities. And and certainly there were other traumas that have happened over the past few years, certainly in the United States with George Floyd. And I mean, Black Lives Matter has been going on long before that. But so there's all these other dimensions that when we just say our mental health is um, getting worse or something along those lines, where it allows us to skip over the particulars that we have to face. And that points to what you just said about, are we helping? Isn't always just going to be with a crisis line or, um, you know, access to care. Although those are really important. It's also, what are we doing about socioeconomic inequality? (laughs) What are we doing about crime? What are we doing? You know, they're all related. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a great point. And we just had 988 is a new number, um, for, it was supposed to be more like a suicide hotline, but they're billing it as all mental health conditions. And they just know that we don't have the the manpower to really make it work. So you've set up this thing in theory and we don't know how it's going to go.
0: And there's only really so much you can do with, if someone calls you over the phone. Like imagine how many people are actually calling that that number every single day. And then the person on on the one answering the phone, can you imagine how they must be feeling like they're trying to help someone over the phone rather than in person? So there's got to be like that level of, okay, there's got to be something more that we can do here rather than, I mean, that's all good and well, but there needs to be other areas. Like you mentioned, the socioeconomic issues, crime. I wanted to steer the conversation more towards asking you about what was the the most difficult part for you in terms of writing your new book?
1: It's interesting my it, it, I wrote it very quickly now, granted, I'm a writer, so that was uh, I'd spent years on novels that went nowhere um but I'd been writing my whole life and and it, I wrote it in about five months, which is extremely quickly, um especially yeah. given and the research took longer but so the writing actually, I don't want to say it was easy, but I did something kind of different than often happens, which is that I didn't show anyone um, the book, but I did. I have an ex-boyfriend who's actually in the book. His name is Ray. He's in the book and he's a he does construction and his work is incredibly hard on his body. You know, he's the one jackhammering all day long. So he can't read and when he comes home he just is deflated. But he does listen to audiobooks all the time. So what I did is I would write a chapter and then I would record myself reading it and I would send it to him and he would listen. And all he would say was, it's fantastic. Keep going. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> Excellent. that's what you want in a writing partner. Like that is all you want in an editor. And so I did, I just was going so, so quickly. So that was really a, a very fulfilling experience. Um, and, and not so much hard. What's kind of odd is the hardest chapter to write is um, about, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder after my cat of 16 years had died. Now that sounds ridiculous to people who don't have cats, but people who cat people out there will understand, but I was incredibly sad. I mean, I was bereft and I was grieving and grieving for a long time, but according to the DSM, you know, they, it's, it's a Longer story in terms of how grief has been dealt with in the DSM. But basically, if you make an exclusion for grief, and you can say no, this person has grief and this and doesn't deserve a diagnosis of major depressive disorder. Well, then you have to start making exclusions for other things too. So that's been a real sticking point for the authors of the DSM because it calls into question major depression as a diagnosis. You can't suddenly have all these exclusions that makes it look like a weak diagnosis, you know, a kind of flimsy one. And now they've actually pulled it out. There is no bereavement exclusion. So you cannot, if your father has just died and you grieve for longer than a year, you, you have major depressive disorder, or you have prolonged grief disorder is what it's called now. Um, So anyway, so, you know, there I was, uh, you know, living in New York, it was very difficult. I had no money and my cat had just passed away. And I went to a psychologist. The psychologist said, you have major depressive disorder, but writing and then writing the part of the book where my cat died was the hardest part. (laughs) I mean, here I'm writing about when I've been suicidal and it's not as hard as the cat. (laughs) It was just ridiculous. And it's funny, but readers constantly tell me they cried
0: at that part. So. (laughs) Yeah. I I know uh, what you mean. I'm not a cat person. I'm a dog person. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I know the feeling of losing an animal like, and (laughs) only if you've been through that, will you, fully understand the extent of what we're actually talking about. <laughs> Is it, I remember writing, so I've lost uh, two German shepherds. So one of them, our first one, Missy, when I was eight years old, I believe eight or nine um, and writing about her was hard. And then recently in 2019, we lost our German shepherd of 11 years joy. And that every time I reread it and every time I like Go over it; it just breaks my heart. Like I end up bawling my eyes out as a result. I know. Or whenever I listen to a song, there's one "Happier" uh, by by Steel and Marshmallow. I don't know if you've heard the song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it just makes me cry. I did the worst possible thing, and I watched the music video a day after the loss of of Joy. Oh my goodness! I was an, I was a mess. <laughs> I was a mess. But anyway, I understand that challenge of, of writing about someone you've, you've lost. It, it is, yeah, it's crazy and heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Where can people get a copy of your new book for those people that are in the U S Australia? Do you want to go to Amazon first bookstore? Yeah. Where do you want
1: Amazon or local bookstores? It's available everywhere. You can also contact Harper Collins or Harper one, which is the publisher. And um, you can also contact me. So on socials, I'm at Sarah Fay author. So it's S-A-R-A-H-F-A-Y author on all social media platforms.
0: I'll make sure everyone knows where to get a copy of the book, connect with you, all those wonderful things. Sarah, my final question for you, if you've gotten to the end of my conversations on my other podcasts, then you'll have already prepared for this one, hopefully. Uh, Maybe I'm overreaching. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this is a hypothetical question I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100 all your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done then ask me how in the world they've got it all call it magic (laughs) for the sake of argument but they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday what do you want that film to say and to show about your life
1: that I helped people, that this book, my writing, Pathological, the Movement, I, I'm i a speaker and that I saved people's lives. I helped people in their lives. And really, I would love for that footage to be me, again, speaking to people, helping people, reaching them. That would be the main thing. And then also being with my cat <laughs> <laughs> and my family <laughs> and my oh. students.
0: <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for your time today, your wisdom, your advice, your stories, and your grace as well with that other part (laughs) for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. It's been a blessing. Thank you so much. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then.